Our Future Now is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. But I think what he's missing is that lynching is more than a crime, it is terrorism. It is designed to instill terror in an individual and in a family and in a community in order to keep the same systems in place that have been in place since the beginning of this country, which is white supremacy. Hi everyone, I'm Natalie Meebane and I'm the co-founder of the National Children's Campaign and Vice President of Government Relations and Public Policy. Hi everyone, my name is Jonah Gottlieb. I'm an 18-year-old organizer and I'm the co-founder and executive director of the National Children's Campaign. Today on Our Future Now, we're going to be talking about the rebellion uprising in response to the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and countless others and the demands from the Movement for Black Lives to transform this country. We'll also be talking about local and federal responses to the protests and the police violence and what you can do to help us in this fight. Today, we are honored to have two amazing guests with us, Devin Del Palacio and Anthony Rogers Wright. Devin is the chair of the Black Council of the National Association of School Boards, Tolson School Board member of Arizona, and the Vice President of the West Valley NAACP. Anthony is a national racial and climate justice advocate. So we're really happy to have both of them join us this evening. Thanks so much for having me on today. Certainly a pleasure to be here with some serious change makers. Huge shout out to you, Natalie and Jonah, for leading the fight. You guys are doing amazing work. And so thank you for doing what you do and leading and moving our nation forward with our children. This is Anthony Rogers Wright. I'm also really honored and feel blessed to be here. Great to have you both here. So obviously, we are at a moment in our country right now that I think has been building for a long time. And it's really in response to the murder of George Floyd and so many other murders of Black people around the country and around the world. And I think that it's really thanks to so many organizers who have been putting in this legwork for years. And now this kind of movement is all coming together and millions of people are now joining these organizers who have been on the streets and leading this fight. You two have been leading these protests recently, but then also have been leading the fight for racial justice for years. In my work as a climate justice advocate, those three very, very haunting words, I can't breathe, has a lot of significance. It goes back to the time of lynching, right? You could be thinking of of Black women and Black men who thought to themselves, I can't breathe. Their last breaths were stolen from them when they were lynched by white supremacist terrorists. And then you apply that to a legacy of environmental racism via redlining, where communities of color, specifically Black and um, Latino, Latina communities, were uh, situated near toxic polluters. This led to um, higher increases in asthma and respiratory diseases. You take a zip code like 48217 in Detroit, which is the most polluted zip code in all of Michigan, Those people are saying, I can't breathe every day as they are situated near the Marathon oil refinery and all kinds of other toxic emissions. And then you add to the mix being choked out by cops, by dirty cops, by racist cops. This idea of I can't breathe, we're getting choked out by toxic emissions, we're getting choked out by toxic cops, and we're getting choked out by an extractive economy that has been set upon and against the humanity and the safety of Black people and Black bodies since the inception of this country. If there's any silver lining in what we're seeing right now with this pandemic is that it really forced everybody, everyone in this country to wrestle with the 400-year sin that is racism. No concerts, no entertainment, no sporting events, 
nothing to distract the American psyche away from this disease that has plagued our nation since inception. And I honestly feel that this is a tipping point. We are seeing a tipping point generations upon generations upon generations of abuse and trauma and looting and pillage. Now we're seeing this massive energy just bubble up. I know it's getting real because I've received so many emails and calls from my white friends, white colleagues checking in and committing to addressing their privilege and doing some research. And honestly, I've never had that experience prior. And so the fact that there are so many white folks that are willing to be co-conspirators, right? Not allies, but co-conspirators in this movement, I think is going to push us over this hump because people of color have been saying this for decades and generations. My grandmother marched during the civil rights movement, and I hear the stories that she shares with me. So this isn't anything new. The unfortunate George Floyd murder, that act of violence isn't new. It's just now that we have the technology to capture it on video, and now everyone is able to view it, unfortunately. It's because of this, as Devin said, this 400-year sin and these systems of oppression that are keeping folks down and have been doing it for generations. And so when we're looking for solutions, it can't be as simple as just reforming the police because that doesn't solve everything else. And these protests are not just about police. It's about everything that is keeping black and brown folks down in this country and around the world. That's why as National Children's Campaign, we were so happy to sign on and support of the Movement for Black Lives Week of Action and their demands alongside hundreds of other organizations this past week. In those demands, Yes, it is about police, but it's about so much more. It's about completely tearing down these systems that have been oppressing people around the country for so long and building something that invests in and supports communities all around the country. It's literally the entire system that needs to be uprooted. It's the entire system. Because when these systems were originally built, they weren't built for folks like me and Anthony and Natalie. They weren't built for people like us. The school system, the healthcare system, the judicial system, everything was not built for folks like us. And in fact, it was designed the quite opposite effect, to have a negative effect on our communities. When we were fighting, and, and still are fighting, the Keystone XL pipeline, the Dakota Access pipeline, we weren't just saying like, oh, we stop these pipelines, climate change will be addressed. We were also talking about a larger system of investment in the fossil fuel industry in the form of perverse subsidies with our tax dollars. And I think that this is really, really similar. And to your point, Jonah, this is why Movement for Black Lives has been looking to the environmental community to really up their game, to atone for some of the racism, white supremacy that's ensconced in the culture of white environmentalism, but also because if anyone gets this, it's y'all. It's to fund and reinvest, right? We're not just talking about taking money from the police and just like sprinkling it out without a plan. We're talking about investment, as you were saying, in the public good, whether that's schools, whether that's economic opportunities. And we're asking for that to be focused in a community. As Brother Devin said, this police force was designed for really three things, to keep white people safe, to keep Natalie, Devin, and I enslaved, and to keep indigenous people dying. And when you understand that, and you see amazing scholars who are writing books like The End of Policing, that's something that we really have to evoke to people who aren't necessarily on board with this, because a poll did come out today that shows that a majority of, of United Statesians are against this idea of defund the police. But the most majority of those people who are against it are because they look at this institution as what keeps them safe. And this is why you've seen it abused with the Cornerstone Karens, with the barbecue Beckys, with Black people just being 911 called on them for breathing and existing. Natalie and Devin and I have never thought 
to call the police on a white person for having a barbecue, I mean, that would just be like a Dave Chappelle skit. We would probably get laughed at. That mentality of like who is being protected is extremely important. There is no direct correlation between increased funding in police and a drop in violent crime. Violent crime has been going down in the United States every single year. I would say to those people who are against defunding the police, you cannot say that you are about slashing the United States military budget if you're against slashing the budgets for localized militaries. I think one thing to dive into in terms of what defunding the police really means as a demand, it's that it means reinvesting the large budgets that are currently going to police departments across the country and reinvesting it into preventative measures. I think it's too much to ask of police to be the ones responding when somebody is in a mental health crisis. You're also essentially setting them up for failure and you're putting them in situations that could be better handled by a social worker, by a mental health professional. And I think that what we have to understand is that putting in preventative measures into communities, that would be a better alternative than always sending the police in is what defunding the police is about. Also, it's about making sure that police aren't armed like military. A lot of the gear and the vehicles that are coming into cities now are coming over that were previously in war zones. You know, the United States also has a very large military budget. And what does it do when it has these leftover, pretty much tanks and armored vehicles? They want to sell them to local police departments to get them off their hands. And then we're spending our tax dollars on vehicles that most likely would be used against protesters. That does not make me feel safer. It makes me feel that I am the enemy in my own country. And if these services and these police vehicles were bought in order to protect me, I'd rather have a lot of that funding used for schools, for healthcare, for other community services that are usually underfunded to begin with, and to make sure that we can prevent a lot of the unrest that police are always called in to respond to. You know, Natalie, I, I agree with you. You know, there's an old saying that says, show me your budget and I'll show you what your priorities are. I encourage people to do your own research. Ask for that school district budget. Ask for your local police department budget, your city budget, and look at those large line items and see if they align with what the community priorities are. It's better to be proactive instead of reactive. I tell some police officers all the time, it's that my job as a school board member is to make sure my students don't have to visit you later down the line. Let's open a school. Maybe we can close a prison. On average, the U.S. spends roughly 7400 per pupil. In Arizona, we spend about 4300 per pupil, one of the last in the entire nation. Yet, we spend over $21,000 per inmate, per inmate. 4300 on average per student, over 21000 per inmate annually. Again, priorities, right? Priorities. But we know that certain lawmakers are incentivized to craft laws to criminalize people because it's a business. Here in Arizona, we have several private prisons that have to have 90% or greater occupancy rates. These are guaranteed occupancy rates that we're saying that we're going to have. We're telling people that we can't have any empty beds or else it's the taxpayers that have to foot the bill. It's insane. What are we doing? We should not profit off incarceration and locking up human beings. The only thing that I would say that in addition to defunding the police is that the criminal justice system also includes courts. So when we're talking about reinvesting, some people would have a better defense if they defended themselves than relying on a public defender. Public defenders are underpaid, they're overworked, and they're forced to make horrible deals that lock specifically Black, Brown, and Indigenous people up for much, much longer. 
we have to get to the heart of it. When you're in the business of extraction, you are going to extract. So the same sort of inertia that you see being held against the fund of police is the same inertia that you see in the case, as Brother Devin said, with private prisons. It's extracting from the Black community and destroying Black families. So you can't reform that. You can't just like add little tweaks to that. This requires a massive transformation altogether. And we have seen it done in cities like Camden, where the entire police was abolished and brought back together from scratch. This idea that it can't be done, it has been done. And I think we're going to see people in the street, which gives me so much happiness, because we're not just like going to be mollified with perfunctory milquetoast reforms anymore. I mean, the same goes with education, the same goes with healthcare, the same goes with policing, the same goes with climate change. It's not enough. We're out of time. You had your chance 50, 60, 100 years ago to implement these changes. The ancestors of Natalie, of Devin, of my own, have been saying this literally for full lifetime. So you're not going to overcome four centuries of white supremacy with a bill that was written in four hours. Two episodes ago, we had on Ed Navarro and Giovanni Hernandez to talk about how school districts are going to have to cut their already slim budgets by tens of millions of dollars due to the coronavirus pandemic. And yet, while all that's going on, police budgets in many cities and towns are increasing or staying the same and not facing these same cuts. And I think that's really just emblematic of this entire system and shows the priorities of our society and of our government. And so, Devin, I'd love to hear from you as a school board member. What would your school district in Arizona look like if you had the billions of dollars that are going to the Phoenix PD right now? We could meet every student's individual needs. We can actually pay our staff. We can actually hire more educators. We can hire more educators that reflect the community that we serve. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Literally, schools can make or break an entire community, right? You have a bad school district, no one's going to want to purchase homes. No businesses are going to want to set up shop. You won't have the workforce, right, to help develop that community. So good schools matter. More importantly, good school board members matter. So getting young people like Anthony or other great activists involved, other great leaders, we need more folks that are community-minded, that understand that it's not just a seat that you sit there and occupy for air. It's not about showing up to the fancy dinners. It's about getting down to the business and doing the work on behalf of the people, on behalf of the students and the community. And so I just want to say that public education, education as a whole, can be the one tool that we can use to change our society for the better. And looking at what has been happening the last few weeks and really the mobilization that has been happening across the country, there has been a federal response. Fairly recently, the House introduced H.R. 7120, which is the Justice in Policing Act of 2020, introduced by the chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus, Representative Karen Bass. And from looking over the bill, there, there does seem to be some things that are great, such as qualified immunity being included, which would essentially make police officers liable for their behavior in terms of being able to be sued. But I know from our discussions, Anthony, there are some things that you've mentioned that you don't think it really goes far enough or that should have been included as well. I, of course, have the utmost amount of respect for Representative Bass. I believe that she wants to serve her community, her constituents, first and foremost. 
However, this Justice Policing Act is a bit milquetoast if you compare it to the demands of Movement for Black Lives and quite frankly to the demands of Black people for years and decades. Qualified immunity is very, very good, but it still doesn't call for removing funding and it still is a whole list of grant that local law enforcement can get. There's no oversight on how that money can and, and will be spent. And there's no discussion, for instance, of the prohibition of all civilian police departments being trained by militaries, by militaries like the Israeli Defense Force. And I'm saying this as a Black Jew, even if I wasn't pro-Palestine, I would not want my civilian police force being trained by an international military that basically sees its opponents as enemies that are meant to be killed as a first resort. It really needs to go a bit deeper, in my opinion. There's a lot of end of the pipe solutions. I do like that there is discussion on citizens oversight boards, but we need to get deeper into what kind of teeth that those citizens oversight boards will have. And I do, yes, think that the federal government should definitely be funding them. But overall, these are inadequate reforms when we need massive transformation. One thing that stood out to me with this new bill, which is HR 7120, Justice and Policing Act of 2020, that it also includes lynching as a federal crime. And Senator Rand Paul objected with the idea that, well, lynching is murder and murder is legal. Why designate lynching as being anything different? But I think what he's missing is that lynching is more than a crime. It is terrorism. It is designed to instill terror in an individual and in a family and in a community in order to keep the same systems in place that have been in place since the beginning of this country, which is white supremacy. And so I think that having lynching listed explicitly within this bill is necessary because what the world witnessed a few short weeks ago with George Floyd and with many other cases like Ahmaud Aubrey and many other cases that have not been videotaped is what a public lynching looks like in 2020. And that this is the same tactics and murder that have been happening in this country since its inception in order to keep them essentially in their place to not speak out and to not have the full autonomy that is supposed to be afforded to everyone in this country. And so I do want to give a good congratulations of having that included in the bill. But of course, as you said, Anthony, there are many areas that it should have gone farther and that are still needed by the federal and local and state governments to actually address the real roots of the problems of police murder. What I would say about the lynching component is I kind of like had a Pavlovian reaction and laughed out of sadness. It's 2020. And, and, and it reminds me of something that our, our brother George Floyd's brother said when he was testifying in Congress. And he was like, my brother was killed for $20. You know, his life wasn't worth $20. This is 2020. And you're right. This idea that you only need a piece of rope to lynch someone is just absolutely frivolous. And for Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, try to hold this up with a anemic filibuster just to get his name in the papers. But it just shows that the GOP's words and Rand Paul's words of the past were meretricious and specious, and that he clearly did not uh, mean what he said and was just trying to get votes or try to give um, African Americans some sort of fake sense of security with the political system. This bill, Sister Natalie, is a discussion piece. It's a discussion starter. It's not meant to be the final word on this. We know that we are going to have to continue coming up with new and innovative ideas to keep ourselves safe, to keep our communities safe, to keep our bodies safe. And this is a good conversation starter. I have met with Chairwoman Bass before. She's extremely reasonable and brilliant and, and has a very good soul. And I want to say that. So I do believe that she will be open to hearing the voices of uh, young Black, especially Black women-led formations like Moving for Black Lives, a rising majority, and many others who will want to sit down with her and say, like, thank you for this. And you need 
to build off of this. You know, we're not seeing a discussion. You know, we don't want to limit the amount of military equipment police officers get. We want to eliminate it altogether. We know that acts of so-called acts of terror that have been thwarted in cities like New York, which is my hometown and all across the country, had nothing to do with the cost of military equipment. It had to do with people who actually trusted police officers and shared information with them. And that is going to reduce crime more than an MRAP or a flash grenade. That is not going to stop crime as much as real community policing and trust within these communities. So again, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but like this bill is a good starting piece. It's not fully adequate, but the things that are adequate are very, very adequate. I do want to congratulate the chairwoman Bass on that. Again, to echo some of the comments from Brother Anthony is that this is a great start. I don't think you can dismantle 400 plus years of systemic racism in one bill, in one week, in two weeks, in three weeks. I don't think that racism ends when Trump gets voted out of office. It was here before him. I think it's still going to be here after him. But we must keep pushing forward to dismantling the barriers that exist. We know they exist. My great-great-grandfather was a slave. He was brought over from Madagascar. And I think our ancestors are probably looking down at us and saying, here we are in 2020, and lynching is still being debated on whether it should be a crime and to what level. I mean, it's appalling. Some folks would just feel that this just is just political theater. And so it's upsetting that we have members today in the U.S. Congress that feel that way towards American citizens. Let's not get too caught up in what's happening at the federal level. Let's also pay attention to what's happening at your local level, your local police departments, your local right. cities, mayor, city councils. A lot of them have the authority to enact some of these policies that we're discussing at a much faster rate. And so I would say engage with them, figure out who they are, send them an email, give them a phone call. Do not forget these people work for you for you. Let's start engaging at a local level. Recently, a veto-proof majority of the Minneapolis City Council came out in favor of dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department. And this is, I think, an amazing step because it shows that reform is not enough. Because for years, the Minneapolis Police Department was heralded as one of the most progressive police forces in the country. It had all the reforms like body cams, no bias trainings and things like that. But you can't just reform racism. You can't reform murder. And so it doesn't matter for a lot of these cops if they're caught on video murdering because they don't care. You can talk all you want about demilitarizing some of these police forces, but George Floyd wasn't killed with a weapon. He was killed with a knee. He was killed by this police officer who was felt emboldened by the power that he was given over other people in this community. And so the way to dismantle that is by dismantling these police departments and transitioning these resources, sending in support services and medical professionals, and sending most of this money to other support systems like education and housing and healthcare. And these systems that will actually build up communities and support communities instead of supporting the groups that are keeping communities down. Today, we do have word that a resolution was adopted by the Minneapolis City Council. It's called declaring the intent to create a transformative new model for cultivating safety in our city. And it starts right off the bat with whereas police violence and use of excessive force have led to community destabilization, a decrease in public safety, and the exacerbation of racial inequities in Minneapolis, 
that's the preamble of how it starts. The resolution has been passed, I believe unanimously, and the next step will be to turn this into actual city ordinance. And what we're also seeing in other municipalities is they have severed ties with the police union. Now, essentially put up a proverbial middle finger and said, we are not scared of you anymore. We're not going to let you determine what is best for our constituents. And I think that that's something that is extremely, extremely important. It is all local municipalities to sever their ties, stop taking money, stop taking anything from these police unions because they for too long have been vanguards of miscreant killer cops and a culture of white supremacy in policing overall. So incredible step by Minneapolis. It fills my heart with so much hope. And not that I'm saying that people shouldn't vote. I would like to point out that all of the things that are being announced had nothing to do with one vote being cast. It had to do with principled struggle by the people in unity and in the streets. And this is the result of that principled struggle. In many of these cities where these police forces are committing these atrocities are being done under the oversight of mayors and city councils that are very progressive and talk a lot of talk. And now I think that these public protests, this mass movement of millions of Americans coming together and millions of people coming together around the world is finally showing them that's not enough. You have to walk the walk too. We really want to thank our guests tonight, Devin Del Palacio and Anthony Rogers Wright for joining us and giving us so much knowledge and insights on everything happening right now in our country. And Devin, what would be the best way for people to get in touch with you? Find me on Instagram at Devin4Zona. That's Devin, the number four, Zona on Instagram. Or Devin Del Palacio on Facebook and Twitter. Please connect with me. I would love to connect with anyone who's looking to help move the needle forward on social justice. Excellent. And Anthony, what would be the easiest way for folks to get in touch with you? You can definitely go to my Facebook page, Anthony Rogers Wright, and that's R-O-G-E-R-S hyphen W-R-I-G-H-T, and there will be some more social media associated with my first book, which will be out in November, called Intersection, All Missed Opportunities and New Possibilities for the Climate Community. Be on the lookout for that. Much of the proceeds from the sales of that book will be going to frontline grassroots environmental justice organizations. Excellent, excellent. We will look forward to your book coming out soon in November. And we just want to give you, of course, a great thank you for both of you to join us. You've been such wonderful guests. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Today, we've heard a lot about how we can transform our country on the federal, state, and local level. And so if you want to support some of these local organizers who are leading the fight for transformative action in our country, please donate to the Black Visions Collective at blackvisionsmn.org. That's blackvisionsmn.org. If you want to get involved at the local and state level, you can contact your city council and your mayor's offices about police funding and how it is so necessary to prioritize funding for communities and education and healthcare and housing and all these other programs over these destructive police forces. Another way that you can help is to join us on June 19th for the Juneteenth mobilizations happening across the country hosted by the Movement for Black Lives. So we are marching in solidarity with the Movement for Black Lives, which you can go to their website, which is m, the number four, bl.org. That again is m number four, so the actual digit of four, b 
bl.org and you can find the movement for black lives demands as well on their website so we hope that you can join us june 19th for the juneteenth mobilizations against police brutality our future now is produced by goal 17 media storytellers for the common good our media partners are parentology i'm jonah gottlieb and I'm Natalie Mebane. Make sure to subscribe and share our podcast with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, give us a rating and comment. We will see you next time on Our Future Now. 